Today we're, uh, we're going to look at what happens whenever God gate crashes a party, graffitis a wall, Banksy style, and uses a disembodied body part to speak powerfully and directly into someone's life. It's also a chapter that reveals what happens whenever, to quote Sam Smith, and the title track of the latest Bond movie, it's what happens whenever the writing's on the wall. I love it whenever biblical phrases and ideas become embedded in popular culture. And during this series, we've been uh, identifying and highlighting some key characteristics of, of deep faith, or rather, people of deep faith, people like Daniel and his three friends. And again, in this chapter, Daniel, who's, who's now about 80 years old, he's still reflecting as an 80-plus-year-old man a depth that is an example and a challenge. But Daniel 5 also captures the story of someone who stands in kind of sharp and striking contrast. A new character is introduced into the drama. A new character who lacks depth and suffers the consequences. So let's stand together for the public reading of God's mysterious word. It's page 889 in the Pew Bibles, Daniel chapter 5. Let's stand together. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. And while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. And he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. And so the king summoned the enchanters and the astrologers and the diviners. And he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed with purple, will have a gold chain placed around their neck, and will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing. They could not tell the king what it meant, so King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face grew even more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banqueting hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. End of verse 12. Call for Daniel. He will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, verse 16. Now, I have heard, says Belshazzar, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read the writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple. You'll have a gold chain placed around your neck. You'll be made the third highest in the kingdom. 
Then Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts for yourself. Give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing and tell you what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty, greatness, glory, and splendor. Verse 20, but when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people. He was given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and he ate grass like the ox and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and he sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the God of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. You and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone who cannot see or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent that hand that wrote the inscription. And this is the description that was written. Many, many tekel parson. And here's what those words mean. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck. He was proclaimed third in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, was killed, and Darius the Mede took over his kingdom. Grab a seat. At one level, Belshazzar's personal experience was unique, thankfully unique. Like who wants or who could cope with severed body parts, scribbling mysterious messages on the walls of our homes? But at another level, the general content of this rather disturbing message is relatively universal. You see, our days are numbered. Our lives will be weighed. Our attitudes, our words, and our actions, they're, they're going to be placed in some kind of balancing scales. And division is staring all of us in the face, long term. And therefore, it would be very dangerous to read Daniel chapter 5 and then kind of distance yourself from it. The other thing I, I want to draw attention to is, is the critical importance and value of mystery and imagination. Because it seems that God often uses these to communicate. And that's something that I, I reckon we, we need to recognize. We need to learn. We need to relearn, particularly in today's postmodern or rather ultra postmodern culture and context. You see, sometimes we are far too prone as Christians and as churches to present a series of facts and propositions regarding God and the Christian faith. And it captures next 
than no one's imagination. What we need to recover is an appreciation of mystery and the ability to create intrigue as we share God's word and God's story. The reason this king sat up and took notice of what was being spoken into his life was the way that it was communicated. If Daniel had wandered into that party and tried to speak directly and bluntly to Belshazzar into his life, especially regarding imminent judgment, it's highly unlikely he would have got an audience. He wouldn't have got a word in edgeways. But as a result of the mysterious nature of the message and its creative presentation, the king's imagination is ignited and he's hungry. He's dying to know what it meant. And this thought and, and this kind of discovery shouldn't come as any real surprise to us because whenever, for example, the Old Testament prophets took God's word and spoke it into kings' lives and into people's lives, they often used creative expressions. They often used rich imaginative language. They often used poetic words to arrest people's attention. Or whenever Jesus wanted to speak truth and hope, his favored method or mode of communication was what? The parable. Those short stories that snagged attention and interest, wet people's appetites, created questions, prompted curiosity. Jesus was genius at this. Mystery, imagination. I'm not suggesting there is never or isn't a place for direct and straightforward presentations of God's word and God's truth. That would be crazy if I stood up here and said that. But I am suggesting that we mustn't lose or be afraid of mystery and the need to capture people's imagination. God spoke. God speaks in riddles. Not so that we don't understand, but so that we, we will be drawn to search for a deeper understanding and meaning. Let's embrace and celebrate mystery because maybe, just maybe, it might awaken or reawaken a far greater interest in the big story that makes sense of everything. But back to Daniel 5. And let's take a closer look because in, in the previous chapter that Drew took us through so brilliantly a couple of weeks ago, King Nebuchadnezzar, you will might recall, had been humiliated, but then restored. He had renounced his sins. Incredible thought. The king of Babylon renounced his sins, it says in chapter 4. And he ends up praising the Most High God. But then his 40-plus year reign is over. And there's a new king on the throne of Babylon, and that new king is called Belshazzar. Now, there's been a fair amount of debate regarding his exact identity and where he came from. But according to the first four verses of this narrative, we get a quick insight into his character. He's arrogant. He trivializes the things of God. He's blasphemous. And he worships any number of false man-made gods. His idolatry is kind of extreme and extensive. 
And again, it would be easy to kind of isolate ourselves from Belshazzar and maintain this safe distance. And yet, these three sins are still very much alive and well in our world. Even for those of us who are Christians, we are at risk from these attitudes and actions. We are still prone to wander. I am still prone to wander down these alleys. Other gods regularly compete compete for my affection. I regularly replace capital G God with other small g gods. God doesn't always occupy number one place in my life. And in terms of blasphemy, and this is a subtle one, Belshazzar blatantly misused and abused the sacred and holy things of God, the gold goblets from the temple in Jerusalem. He dishonored God via his attitude and his actions towards them. And although it's hard to imagine us doing anything like that, because is, is there an equivalent? Let me ask you a reasonably provocative question, which I was confronted with this week as I was preparing for this morning. Have you spoken, acted, or reacted negatively, aggressively, or angrily towards another Christian or child of God this week? Because remember, we are now holy vessels. We are temples of the Holy Spirit who have been set apart and consecrated because of Jesus. And therefore, to misuse or abuse another brother or sister in Christ in any way, whether in thought, verbally, or actively, is surely a form of blasphemy. It dishonors a holy God. Plus, how do we treat the holy things of God? Like marriage, like human life itself, creation, the environment. Do we dishonor God through how we use those things? I'm not trying to make any of us feel God at or send anybody on a guilt trip, but you know, deep people, people of deep faith recognize and wrestle with the ongoing temptation of these three sins in their lives. They never point fingers, but they personally search their hearts, confessing where necessary and constantly realigning our lives with God's. Let's not distance ourselves too far from the lakes of Belshazzar. But he did none of the above. He was arrogant, he was blasphemous, he was blatantly idolatrous. And although he thought he could do his own thing and he could get away with it, God dramatically interrupted, God gate-crashed his party, grabbed his attention and declared other ways. And the reality is no one can do their own thing and avoid the repercussions. Nobody. 
To put it in New Testament terms, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. How you live before God has significant short and long-term implications. Belshazzar is obviously shaken by this. He's frightened. His legs cave in. And whatever is scrawled in the wall, he is no doubt it needs to be interpreted. It needs to be deciphered. His imagination is ignited. This is mysterious. But I've got to discover more. I need to discover more. And so he refers to his mystics, his spiritual advisors, his magic circle. And he looks and he searches for answers. And, and he offers rewards and incentives. Purple clothing. Gold chains. Third position in his kingdom. But none of these guys can decode the graffiti. And so the color drains further from his face. But then there's a glimmer of hope because the queen, or maybe it's the queen mother, no one's quite sure, she steps forward and she identifies a man called Daniel who she says can interpret dreams, can explain riddles, can solve problems. And if you send for him, he will decode the graffiti. And so Daniel is summoned. And Daniel's offered the same rewards. But Daniel can't be bought. Daniel refuses the incentives. At least he does for now. It's fascinating. He refuses the incentives, but in the end, takes them. Come back to that. But why does he say, no, Keep them for yourself. Give them away to someone else. Well, it's because he recognizes, do you know something? This message is from God, and therefore it needs to be heard. It absolutely has to be heard, as every single message and word of God does. It's got to be heard. And Daniel begins by referring back to Nebuchadnezzar, who became arrogant, who became proud, and therefore, if you were here on the 25th of October, you'll remember he was dramatically humbled for seven years until he eventually acknowledged God, the most high sovereign God. And after Daniel refers back to Nebuchadnezzar, he then kind of turns the spotlight and fixes it on Belshazzar. And he highlights his problem. He kind of lifts the lid on this king's life. And he reveals a fact that is not only relevant to some Babylonian king of 2,600 years ago, but it is relevant to every single human being. Because look again at verses 22 and 23. Particularly the opening phrase of 22 the closing phrase of 23, but you, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, you have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, you did not honor the God who holds in your hand, in his hand, your life and all your ways. Humility and worship are two of the most important aspects of a godly life. A Christian life, a real life. Arrogance 
and pride, this determination to live for self and please self, combined with the refusal to submit to God and give him his proper and rightful place in our lives, those kill life. Arrogance and pride threaten our spiritual war welfare in the present and determine and define it in the future. These are two core characteristics of deep people. Humility and worship. Arrogance and pride are key features of doomed people. And Belshazzar fell into the latter category, and therefore the writing was on the wall. The inevitable was imminent. His fate was sealed. The end was nigh. The consequences were tragically unavoidable. He had chosen to live his way. He was about to face the result. He was about to encounter the inescapable judgment of God, as we all are. But one of the most telling phrases is in verse 22. And I've highlighted it here in the screen. Belshazzar, you knew all this. You're not ignorant. You're not uninformed. You haven't been blindsided. You knew Nebuchadnezzar's story. You knew what happened to him as a result of his arrogance and his pride. Plus, you knew what happened to him whenever he reached the place of actually acknowledging the Most High God as sovereign and praising him. Belshazzar, you have no excuse. You knew the truth, but you refused to take it on board. You still lived for yourself. You still lived to your own agenda. You still maintained your arrogance, your pride. You still expressed blatant blasphemy. You still redirected your worship to other gods. And now, the graffiti on the wall spells out your destiny. And for us, and for all mankind, there is a powerful and profound lesson to learn here. Because you know something? We know a lot. We are a privileged people to have God's Word at our hand. God's Word is accessible to us. We know the big story. We know the individual stories. They're there for us in black and white. We know Nebuchadnezzar's story. We know Belshazzar's story. We know Daniel's story. God has spoken. God has communicated to each one of us. None of us are left without a witness. We know that those who humble themselves will be exalted. We know that we're to love God with our entire beings, heart, soul, strength, mind. We know that we're to have no other gods. We know that we're to be holy. We know that it is appointed unto every single one of us to die once and then to face judgment. We know that we are to forgive those who sin against us. 
And the issue is, we, we know it, but do we believe it? And not only do we believe it, do we live it? Does it kind of flow? Does it journey from head to heart? Do we not only seek to hear, but endeavor to do? You see, Belshazzar knew all this. He knew enough. What did he do? He chose to ignore it. He chose to do his own thing. And whenever that becomes our decision, then there is, and I know this isn't popular, there is going to be a day of reckoning and humbling that awaits all of us that will be, for want of a worse word, a chilling prospect. And it's at this point in the story, whenever Daniel has said, Belshazzar, you knew all of this. And it's at this point in the story that we discover the content of the graffiti. Four, or rather three, intriguing words which captured imagination, confused people, but Daniel disclosed the sobering meaning. Numbered, weighed, divided. Belshazzar, your, your days and your reign as king are up. They're over. Your life has been placed on these balancing scales of God and, and you've been found wanting. And so do you know what? Your kingdom's going to be divided. There are some very real, painful, personal consequences for you. And however else we interpret this and however far we push it, the one thing we do know, not just from this incident, but from the rest of Scripture and the whole of God's Word, is that this idea, and I go back to what I said at the start, this idea that our days are numbered, that our lives will be weighed, and that division is staring all of us in the face. Those three things are part and parcel of not only Belshazzar's story, but actually every single one of our stories. All the days ordained for me were written in your book, God. And you will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. And for we must all stand before the judgment of Christ. And we'll each receive what we deserve. For the good, for the evil that we've done in this earthly body. We, know, we, we all know this. But what are we going to do about it? Because for each of us, without exception, the writing's on the wall. And Belshazzar must have been reeling. But to his credit, he follows through on what he promised. He clothes Daniel in purple. He places a chain round his neck. He makes him third in his kingdom. And then the final two verses confirm the truth and credibility of God's word. 
Because that night, Belshazzar's taken out. His time's up. And a king from another empire takes over his kingdom. And therefore, we're reminded that what God says, what God predicts, what God promises comes to pass, happens, occurs. But then again, we all know this. And the challenge is, and with this I finish, in light of what we know, how will we respond? How will you respond this morning in light of what all of us sitting in this church building know? At the very least, can I urge all of us to respond to the writing on these pages with humility and worship? Because deep people who keep the faith certainly will. And for the last couple of minutes, I'd like to invite us to sit in silence. And if you want to use these words, we sit in silence, O God Most High, before your intense holiness. Protect us from pride and inspire us to worship. Thank you for the gift of your mysterious, life-shaping word. Deepen our faith and enable us to walk humbly before you. Take a moment.